Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 90 of the Good Mood Podcast. It's a landmark episode. We are 10 short of 100 episodes uh, since I started this podcast in mid-2020. Today, we're going to talk about neurodivergent informed therapy. And so this is a... So we'll talk about what neurodivergence is. This is a solo episode to celebrate number 90. I know it's been a while since I've recorded an episode, um, but one of the reasons that I am behind on podcast recording and they're coming in less frequently is because I'm doing, as many of you know, many of you may not, I'm doing a master's degree in counseling psychology at Yorkville University. And I've been doing it for over a year now and I have almost a year left. I'm finishing up my coursework. I have another term and a half of coursework. And it's in September of 2023, I'm going to be starting a practicum. So in addition to my naturopathic practice, I'm also going to be completing a psychotherapy practicum. So if you live in Ontario, stay tuned because there'll be an opportunity to, if you would like to work with me in the capacity of a psychotherapy client. And very likely it'll be a reduced rate as I will be in a, a registered psychotherapist qualifying. So stay tuned. There'll be more information on that, but I'm working, I will be working with a clinic called In Wholeness that, is, that provides online therapy. So for my last course, I wrote a paper called Counseling Neurodivergent Adults in Canada. So I did a lot of research on neurodivergence. And I thought that I would share that article, share this paper as a podcast, because I thought it might be interesting. Because as you will learn, 15% of people in the world, so, you know, two out of every 10, one to two out of every 10 of you listening may identify as neurodivergent, or maybe neurodivergent. And so this might be relevant for you to listen to and to learn more about. And for the sake of avoiding self-plagiarism. I'm going to, you know, be tweaking this article a little bit, expanding on it and giving it a little bit of a naturopathic spin by talking about some nutritional interventions. So I hope you enjoy. This is a little bit different from what I normally do. It's quite academic. I'm not going to be citing the re- or reading out the references or citations. If you want the citation or reference list, I can share that with you. Uh, but there's a very interesting researcher called Botha, Monique Botha, who writes a lot about, she's an autistic researcher, writes a lot about neurodivergence and neurodivergent therapy. So you can always check her out on Google Scholar or PubMed. So the neurodivergence movement recognizes conditions such as autism and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD as identities or biological variations in human behavior and cognition rather than mental disorders or illnesses. So in this podcast, we're going to explore the demographics of neurodivergent adults in Canada, examine specific mental and social health challenges that neurodivergent individuals face, and we'll we'll apply a counseling lens to it, considerations for counselors, but also for clients, patients, you, the public, who uh, are neurodivergent, what what should you seek in terms of counseling or what information may be beneficial for you, but also people providing care to neurodivergent individuals, um, especially counseling care. So this may be applicable, is hopefully applicable to everyone. So some background is 600,000 um, ner- uh, adults in Canada are neurodivergent, and it's about 15% of the world's population. 
Neurodiversity or neurodivergence, they can be used interchangeably. I'll be using them interchangeably for the um, purpose of this podcast. They encompasses attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, autism, and other conditions like dyspraxia, dyslexia, dyscalculia, and Tourette syndrome. And the term neurodiversity was coined in the 90s by Judy Singer and Harvey Bloom, and it became popular discourse or popular terminology in the online autism community. And neurodiversity refers to the variability in human brain structure and cognitive function that reflects the natural biological diversity inherent in most species and essential for their survival. So just like some people have blue eyes, some people have brown eyes, some of our brains work differently. And this is thought to be rather than a disorder, there's so many people in the population that are neurodivergent, that it's likely a normal variation in our cognition that conferred some sort of benefit to our survival. And so neurodivergent, this term refers to individuals whose cognition varies from the standard or the majority. And so in many cases, neurodivergent, neurodiversity, those are interchangeable. Neurodivergent it refers to the individuals. Neurodiversity refers to the, um, the spectrum of diversity in neurological and cognitive function. But we can use them. I'll sometimes say neurodivergent individuals, neuro, uh, neurodiverse individuals. I'll use them kind of interchangeably. And in the literature, I was finding that they were used interchangeably. And in this paper, in this podcast, I'm going to talk about autism and ADHD preferentially because those are probably the more common neurodivergent conditions or neurodivergent states. So autism is, we'll start with talking about, it's it's viewed, it ha- can be viewed f- through various lenses. So for many years and, and even currently, it can be viewed through the lens of developmental psychology. And it refers to an innate lack of the ability or desire to engage in the social world. When viewed through the psychiatric lens, it's a disease, disorder, dysfunction, or otherwise deviation from the norm, which requires prevention, medical management, and cure. And this is often how psychiatry views various diagnoses, right? This is often how the medical system views various states, right? And this is often uh, beef that we naturopaths have um, and and biopsychosocial counselors as well, and that just because there's deviation from the norm doesn't mean that there's an impairment in function, there's something wrong or pathological with the individual, but that maybe it's the societal landscape that is a mismatch, an evolutionary mismatch for the individual. And so, you know, often with psychiatry, there's this normalizing lens, this pathologizing lens that gets applied. And this has been applied to autism, you know, even currently is applied to autism, right? So the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Statistical Manuals, this is like the, the Bible of psychiatry. It lists a set of observable autistic behaviors such as impairment in communication and socialization and restrictive and repetitive behaviors that always have a childhood onset. Nobody uh, exhibits these types of behaviors or symptoms later on in life. They're usually, it, so it, it's if we're considering that it's a genetic condition, genetic neurodivergence, then these are going to be present in childhood. Now, there's a more current, more uh, modern, more uh, from the neurodiverse landscape or lens, 
there's a lens called the deficit is difference. And this is endorsed by the neurodivergent community, which we will get more into. We'll talk more about the neurodivergent community. But through this lens, autism is considered a biologically determined variability in normal human cognition and social function. And so that's quite different from this pathologizing lens. What this deficit is difference implies is that we're born with these differences in the way that we interact with the world, the way we interact socially, the way we interact cognitively. And these may confer different behaviors, mannerisms, ways of interacting with the world. And they're not pathological. They're not necessarily bad. They might interfere with how we're accepted socially or how we engage in a society that's set up for a neuro, um, a neurotypical uh, population. But this doesn't mean that there's a, a pathology or an issue. And so what is often inherent in these biological differences are you know, certain difficulties, especially when uh, when faced with a neurotypical society, but also gifts. And so when we can look at neurodivergence in this in this way, uh, it allows us to see all of the parts of the individual and how they are, how their mental health, how their social health is uh, interacts with the environment that they are raised in, that they're working in, that they're being educated in. So autism has various features, such as alexithymia, which is defined as an inability to articulate or sense one's emotions. Decreased executive functioning. I talk about this a lot in various podcasts and in on Instagram. But executive functioning is the ability to plan, manage, organize, and execute tasks. And so one of the characteristics of neurodivergence is that individuals have difficulty with executive functioning. Other features are social skills deficits and information processing delays. These features may be considered disabilities whenever they interfere with the autistic individual's integration and acceptance into a fast-paced social world in which their neurotype is the minority. Right? So if you are in an environment which you're expected to process information quickly, display high level of executive functioning, there, then there's going to be a a deficit that you experience, difficulty. You know, in a in a highly social sensory world, this is often where autistic individuals encounter difficulty, and their and the features of their neurodivergence may be considered disabilities. There's much overlap between the symptoms of autism and ADHD, and anywhere from thirty to eighty percent of autistic children also meet the criteria for ADHD. So ADHD is a multicultural bi-dimensional concept. Okay. This means that all cultures, right? So the, and this furthers the argument that it is a genetic condition that because it's present in all cultures. So it's not culturally developed. So all cultures have, um, including hunter gatherer societies have individuals that have more of it. Have, that display signs of ADHD. And it's bi-dimensional in that it involves both inattention and hyperactivity and the symptoms just like autism start in childhood. The inattention symptoms are, are more strongly associated with deficits in executive function, academic underachievement, and social symptoms such as shyness and social withdrawal. And often individuals with ADHD are highly intelligent and yet find that they they are inconsistent or underachieving in school and work because of this inattention uh this inattention um dimension in in the way that their cognition works in the way that their brains work 
And hyperactivity is associated with injuries, social problems related to disrupt disruption, aggression, low self-control and impulsivity. And so this may include like interrupting people, just yeah, I- impulsive behaviors, hyperactive behaviors. You can imagine how that might be related to injury. Um, this is often what gets noticed in the classroom in childhood. Women are often diagnosed with autism and ADHD later in life, despite symptoms originating in childhood. In adulthood, the ratio of males to females with ADHD shifts from three to one to one to one. And so we have for every three males uh, or child males, boys with ADHD, there's one girl who's diagnosed, but in adulthood that shifts to one to one. So there probably isn't a gender difference, but only that it gets underdiagnosed in girls. So this means, and put another way, many timely diagnoses in women are missed. And this is further impacted because many uh, neurodivergent women learn to mask their autism or ADHD. And we're going to talk about masking by forcing themselves to make eye eye contact, communicate with gestures, overachieve at work and school. So they put in extra effort to mask, hide, overcompensate for their symptoms of the features of their neurodivergence. And so often they appear neurotypical. And so the the diagnosis is mixed or no one is flagging them for diagnosis. They're also maybe leaning on the more inattentive type if they have ADHD and therefore they're not really noticed by their teachers because they're not overtly or explicitly disruptive in class. Um. So the inattentive form of ADHD often gets missed or underdiagnosed or not diagnosed till later in life when people start doing their own research, advocating for themselves in a healthcare setting, because it's less visibly disruptive and we call it phenotypically noticeable. Phenotype is the expression of your genetics. So, you know, I can dye my hair blonde, but I might I have genetics for brown hair. <laughs> so the phenotype is uh is what gets expressed. Many professionals, uh, unfortunately, are unaware of the autistic female phenotype um, and and the specific characteristics of autism in females. And so many diagnoses are missed until women who suspect they're neurodivergent advocate for their own assessment. And this is often later in life after having many experiences of maybe not fitting in, underachieving at work in school, having issues with work, and then you know, wondering, perhaps externalizing the problem. Maybe this is something to do with the way I'm interacting in 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 this social environment. Maybe I'm autistic, and then advocating for a diagnosis and learning this, you know, as adults. Autistic women have higher rates of anxiety, mortality, and incidences of sexual assault in their lifetime than their neurotypical peers or their autistic male counterparts. So this is worth noting that there's a there's further considerations for women with ADHD or autism. There's also a connection with gender identity and autism or neurodivergence. So transgender and gender diverse individuals self-report more autistic traits, such as system- systematizing, so being very particular and needing to work in systems boxing in one's environment, sort of grid-like thinking, sensory sensitivity, and lower empathy than the average. Transgender and non-binary people are three to six times more likely to be autistic, 
And autistic individuals are seven times more likely to experience variance in gender identity. So there's this sort of Venn diagram in terms of being uh, gender diverse and neurodiverse. And it, and it, it, which tells us that there likely isn't a, it's not that one causes the other because you see both. You see transgender individuals, gender diverse individuals are more likely to be autistic and autistic people are more likely to be transgender, gender diverse. So there's a big chunk of the population um, in the middle of that Venn diagram that are both. And so, you know, as counselors, we should be aware of the prevalence of uh, neurodivergence in gender diverse individuals and vice versa. And in this way, we made tailored therapeutic approaches, improve access to healthcare. It's difficult to advocate for one's healthcare, um, to really explore gender identity when these things are sort of conflated, when, um, you know, when, when we're, when, or, you know, a, an individual who's gender diverse may also uh, wish to explore a diagnosis or an assessment for autism or ADHD to enhance self-understanding. The neurodiversity movement is worth talking about. It upholds the notion of disability as an interaction between social factors and personal deficits. Neurodivergence is a valid variation in what it means to be human rather than a disability or disease to be treated. And this is very important because positively identifying with an autistic or neurodivergent identity may support self-esteem and protect one's mental health. And it's also important to note that an official diagnosis is not necessary to identify as neurodiverse um, and and to be part of the neurodivergent movement or neurodivergent community. And, and many people in the community whether it's cost or in 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 inability to access an assessment don't have a formal diagnosis but you know through reading through understanding the symptoms the features um through connection with the neurodivergent community they're like okay i i really identify and feel like this is how my brain works now, symptoms of neurodivergence are often intertwined with an individual's attempts to adapt to societal ideas of normalcy and so, according to the neurodivergent movement, the distress that a neurodivergent individual experiences results from the conflicts between the individual and their neurotypical environment. And this includes societal barriers they may face, such as lack of acceptance, bullying, social deficits, um, and not from personal medical problems and abnormalities. And so this is important, right? So this idea in the neurodivergent movement, they do um, generally, according to the literature, according to what I, I read, that the idea of disability is accepted. It, it is considered a disability, but a disability, importantly, is framed as an interaction between the individual and the environment rather than so if all humans could fly, it would be considered a disability if you couldn't fly, especially if our society was geared towards flying humans. And so this is the idea that in a neurotypical world, in a sensory social world, having neurodiverse, neurodivergent traits creates a, a deficit in the individual. And so it's about this interaction between society and the individual. So therapy... 
that supports neurodivergent individuals aims to bolster the subjective well-being of the neurodivergent individual and promote diverse and adaptive functioning that and um that even that society may view as atypical. So the idea is not so from the psychiatric lens, it's like this is a deviation from the norm. And so we have to shift the individual to fit the norm. The neurodivergent movement disagrees with this wholeheartedly. The the goal of therapy is not to fit the individual into the mold that society dictates, but to allow the individual to adapt, find their place in society that honors their particular gifts and individual features. And it reminds me of that quote by Jiddu Krishnamurti, it's no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. So this is not this is not mental health. Just fitting an individual, you know, like the um, Procrustean bed, the bed of Procrustes is like chopping the person's foot off to, to fit in the bed. That's not mental health. That's not health. We want to adjust the bed, figure out how to, you know, gain accommodations, how to support skills, how to address issues that a particular individual may be facing. So behaviors like avoiding eye contact or repetitive body movements, these are most likely unharmful to the individual and to others, and therefore should be just viewed as, you know, individual features, possibly even coping mechanisms. And they shouldn't be pathologized. They shouldn't, they don't need to be corrected. They don't need to be repressed. And so therapy and medicine, I argue, should avoid pathologizing the individual and it should avoid trying to impose neurotypical ways of being on the neurodiverse individual. And so this, this neurodivergent movement, it, it's asking for more neurodiverse voices, lived experiences in academic research, clinical spaces, and popular discourse. And we are seeing more um, with the, on, you know, the online world with a focus on tech and technology and um, and, you know, more um, technologically based industries we're seeing uh, in entrepreneurship, we're seeing sort of this rise in an acceptance and a, in, a, um, in a reverence for neurodiverse traits, which, which now there's more room for in society. Um, whereas before society was largely like industrial, factory work, like repetitive, um, like n- not a lot of creative work. Um, so there's also language considerations. So you might hear me mostly saying things like autistic person or autistic individual. So according to research, according to, um, the the current research, the neurodivergent community, neurodivergent individuals largely favor identity first language. So language that says, like autistic individual, autistic person, autistic woman, as opposed to person first language, like person with autism. And this is interesting to me because we, you know, are very often trained, especially from a narrative therapy lens to say something like a person with anxiety, not an anxious person, right? Because by saying anxious person, you are ingraining that uh, feature into someone's identity. It's different with neurodivergence. And in fact, the community largely recognizes that person first language, so saying person with autism, pushes more on the side of stigma 
because it implies that autism can somehow be removed from someone's identity, right? And so it's very different from something like anxiety, where we want to say a person with anxiety because we're, I mean, we're all anxious. It's not like you can completely remove anxiety from someone's life because anxiety is a natural reaction to a a dangerous, life-threatening, stressful circumstance. But the when you say person with anxiety, you're allowing there to be space between the individual's identity and the anxiety. But, but doing that with something like autism may actually reinforce stigma because you're saying, well, you could live without the autism or you could be closer or further away from autism. But uh, but in the neurodivergent community, we're saying that the, that neurodivergence is a genetic, biologically determined variation and therefore, you know, um, it, it's as ingrained in someone's identity as like saying that you're Canadian, right? Canadian woman. Um, so autistic woman. And advocacy groups, they prefer to avoid terms like disorder or high functioning or low functioning. And they prefer to use terms like neurotypical to describe people who are not neurodivergent or to refer to non-autistic traits. And they prefer to use that versus normal. So words like disorder, low functioning or high functioning um, and words like normal are out. Words like neurotypical are preferred to refer to the opposite of neurodivergent um, or the alternative, I suppose. And um, and disability is a word that is used and embraced, but the notion of disability is seen through the biopsychosocial lens and involves society and the environment and not just a problem within the individual. So it's important to consider from this lens, what we want to look at is like, look at the, um, through the biopsychosocial lens that looks at biology, psychology, and, and so and society and how they may manifest, how these factors may create mental health issues or difficulties for an individual. And neurodivergent individuals experience mental health issues, difficulty in social relationships, and struggle with school and work more than neurotypical individuals on average. And so I provided a, um, we were asked for this paper to provide an example case. So I took like kind of a confluence of various individuals that I read about and that I worked with and kind of put them into this case of this fictional character, this fictional client called Miranda, who's an autistic woman, experienced autistic burnout that's misdiagnosed as depression. So Miranda is a 38-year-old woman and mother of two seeking counseling for her low mood and extreme fatigue. And she has recently received diagnoses of ADHD and major depression and has started taking stimulant medication. And this has not fully improved her low energy. Her two small children are very active, and she often feels overwhelmed by her loud and busy home environment. She struggles to maintain her house and prepare and consume regular meals. And Miranda has dealt with anxiety for as long as she can remember. As a teenager, she was diagnosed with anorexia. She's always had difficulty making friends. And she was bullied throughout her school years. She enjoys spending quiet hours alone reading. And this is no longer possible with two small children. She's been staying up late, pouring over information about ADHD, despite not really having time to be alone and read. 
And so she's bought several books about it. She's downloaded various podcasts to learn more. And she's joined many online groups and she's perusing many online forums about ADHD. And she feels that the diagnosis explains her lifetime patterns of underachievement in school and at work. And as she's doing reading and being involved in, in the neurodivergent community, she's wondering if she might also be autistic. But her psychiatrist told her that she can't be autistic because she has friends, makes eye contact, and smiles when speaking. And this is in quotations. And Miranda wants to understand why she struggles so much more than others and if there are tools that can help her manage her low energy and her low mood. And so I use this fictional case you know, rather than using stereotypes, this is just a confluence of many, especially women in my practice who've been, or adults that have been diagnosed with ADHD or autism later in life, and that are exploring this idea of neurodivergence and self-understanding, and often uh, are experiencing difficulties with parenthood, with school, with work, with their social relationships. And they're starting to learn more about neurodivergence and they're identifying with the characteristics and then and now they're in the process of trying to understand themselves and understand their diagnoses. And in Canada, adult autism and ADHD assessments are conducted by psychologists and psychiatrists. Those are the only two professionals that can conduct an assessment. And only a few of these professionals work with autistic women and girls and understand the female phenotype. And in large Canadian cities like Toronto, it can take a year to access a publicly funded adult assessment. In small cities or towns, it may be impossible. It may not even be available. And private assessment can cost someone thousands of dollars. And so very often people go without a diagnosis or they have a delayed or a misdiagnosis. And regarding autism, a delayed or misdiagnosis can cause individuals to attribute their symptoms to a moral failing, laziness, inadequacy. And it can increase the risk of depression and suicide. So rather than the person uh, identifying with the identity of, of being an autistic individual, they're now thinking like, well, maybe I'm lazy. Maybe, like, why am I having difficulties with work? Why do I have issues with the social env environment that I'm in? Why do I always feel overwhelmed, you know, in, in environments that other people seem to thrive in? Am I just an introvert or is there something wrong with me? So we start... People can start to internalize their symptoms because they don't have the self-understanding that can often come with the diagnosis. Even the process of diagnosis can facilitate an individual's self-understanding because you're working with a professional who can help guide you through the process of this entire identity sh frame shift that that often occurs when we get an when we're understanding a new but very important kind of overarching aspect of our identity. So further consequences of delayed diagnosis or misdiagnosis are mistreatment opportunities or misdiagnosis. So somebody may be diagnosed with something else, uh, like in Miranda's case, we're going to learn, um, and lack of understanding of the cause of their depression and anxiety, right? So somebody may think that they have a biological imbalance in their brain causing depression and not understand that it might be actually autistic burnout, just navigating a world that's a, that requires a lot more effort to and energy to manage and to thrive in. And uh, under treatment of eating disorders, which we'll talk about. So women uh, who are not diagnosed with ADHD until adulthood are at an increased risk of depression, anxiety, sleep disorders, eating disorders, substance use disorders, and low self-esteem. 
and they experience more problems with parenting, work, and relationships. And incorrectly diagnosed neurodivergent individuals experience more shame and self-doubt because they're deprived of explanations for their differences, and they're also deprived of tools that may help them cope with a highly sensory, social, busy world. And so this is important. I I have um, mixed opinions about labels. I think in some cases, and in many cases, these labels like ADHD and autism, because it's reflecting a likely a biological genetic variation in somebody's, uh, you know, ability to relate to the world, their, their cognitive abilities, their cognitive style. Um, this might be a, a label that can foster an identity that can connect you to community. It can help um, you understand, you know, what, what coping mechanisms, what skills, what tools could be helpful for you. Um, what environments may facilitate your mental health than others. Whereas with other labels, um, sometimes it can limit us, it can restrict us, it can remove our ability to display agency. So I think, but, but in many, many cases, like an, a, a label of like anxiety could be helpful to somebody because it gives, it helps to locate the problem. Uh, it, it gives the problem a name and then by, and then that implies that there's a solution to the problem, right? So we always, as an ND, as a uh, practice, as a, um, therapist in training, we always want to make sure that, uh, and this is the work of Michael White from Narrative Therapy, is make sure that the problem, we're we're externalizing the problem from the person. People are not problems, problems are problems. When you externalize the problem, you're able to look at it, to work with it, to adjust it, to figure out, is it always a problem? Does it have some benefit? When do I want this thing? When do I not want it? You can you can turn it around. You can come up with solutions for it. If the problem's ingrained within you, then anything you do to try and shift it, it, it involves some sort of self-destruction, right? Some sort of denial of self and identity. And so a label like neurodivergence could be very helpful because now you understand an aspect of your identity and then it can help us parse out problems that are separate from the identity. Okay, you're having a hard time maintaining consistent work. You keep getting fired. Let's break that down. Let's figure that out, right? It's not because, and and maybe your, um, this, this, uh, label of autism is helping us understand why that might happen when we can look at specific behaviors, specific environments, and try to help facilitate the adjustment between the individual and the environment. Now in, uh, in one article, so one researcher, Monique Botha, writes a lot about autism. She's an autistic researcher, and she writes a lot about neurodiversity in the literature. Um, she writes a lot about the the need for more neurodiverse voices to deliver firsthand experiences. She's She points out the problem that as she was getting her PhD, all of the resources, all of the literature she was looking at and researching was all from neurotypical individuals talking about neurodiverse individuals. And, and, and she felt very othered, very misunderstood. And so she talks a lot about this concept of minority stress, which is, um, which was first introduced by uh, Mayer in the early two thousands. And it was, it's related to uh, LGBT Q plus struggles, but but it can be expanded to other minorities. Minority stress refers to the increased burden of socially disadvantaged 
or marginalized group faces that results in mental and physical challenges, uh, physical health challenges. So nine out of, it's interesting to note that nine out of 10 stereotypes about autism are negative. Autistic individuals deal with victimization and discrimination, the expectation of rejection, internalized stigma, and burnout from masking symptoms to fit in with a neurotypical world. In Canada, we have some statistics that 31% of autistic adults rate their physical health as excellent or very good. And this is compared to 61% of adults without autism. So 31%, only 31% of autistic adults feel that they're in very good or excellent physical health. And 61% of neurotypical adults answer the same. So it's a huge, so it's about half. Autistic women and men experience a 256%, so almost three time increase in all cause mortality compared to non autistic people. The increased mortality and reduced mental and physical health seen in autistic individuals are often thought to be a result of the disorder itself. So we look at things from a psychiatric lens, it's like, well, there's this difference and there's these outcomes, therefore it must be the difference causing the outcomes. It's very cause and effect. However, when you start to piece apart the different factors, social support rather than disability severity was more directly correlated with an, an autistic individual's quality of life. So if you provide an, a neurodivergent or autistic individual with the correct amount of social support, and then the, you see these mortality and physical and mental health deficits disappear, reduce. And so this is more of what we're talking about. We're saying, you know, it's all about the environment and, and that, you know, the person, because they're, they're um, situated within a neurotypical world, a highly sensory social wor world, you, the, the individual struggling with this minority stress is experiencing these negative mental and physical health outcomes. And this is worsened by blaming the negative health outcomes on the condition or the state or the individual rather than this discrepancy between the environment and the individual and, and the individual's needs. Only 16% of neurodivergent adults rate their mental health as excellent or very good compared to 70% of adults without autism. And so an, an author called Zenner, Canadian, um, psychotherapist who writes about uh, autism wrote that anxiety occurs more often in individuals with high and above average intelligence and in women. So two thirds of autistic women report having anxiety and anxiety that autistic individuals face uh, can result from the effort to adapt to a highly stimulating interconnected society. So for example, struggling to understand vague instructions um, dealing with abrupt routine changes and experiencing audiovisual sensory overload. 25% of autistic adults experience social anxiety. Um, and you can understand that this is likely to be the case if you're misinterpreting social cues or having difficulty with social relationships or have a history of being bullied. And up to 50% experience depression with females of a high to above average intelligence at higher risk. So um, being female and having high and above average intelligence may put someone at higher risk for mental health struggles. Uh, 
Certain autistic features such as hyperfixation and mood swings can be often misdiagnosed as bipolar disorder, and this can delay or miss a diagnosis. Um, and you can imagine how bad that might be for the person who's now going down a route of medications that are geared towards bipolar disorder that can further affect dopamine pathways, can further stigmatize the individual, and it is not the right treatment, and it's not even the right biochemical pathways involved in supporting someone's, um, you know, uh, social work, uh, life goals. Autistic individuals with high or above average IQ have double the risk of addiction. And this might be because substances ser serve as coping strategies for anxiety, or they can often be ritualistic behaviors. And symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder may also mimic symptoms of autism and again, delay or mask a diagnosis, especially in adults and especially in female adults. So someone might be more likely to get an OCD diagnosis when they actually are autistic. And this might just be because of autism and an anxiety that's related to the, the uh, trying to fit into the neurotypical world. Um, there's much overlap between symptoms of borderline personality disorder and autism. Uh, you know, so emotional dysregulation, uh, feeling overwhelmed, especially in like highly stimulating environments. Um, you know, individuals with BPD often have a history of trauma and autistic individuals often have a especially a social trauma history, history of being bullied, history of social rejection, um, inconsistent relationships, abandonment. Um, so autistic individuals may be at risk for BPD due to environmental and social factors like social rejection or trauma. Suicide risk is really important to talk about. So autistic people have increased early mortality and suicide is one of the leading causes of death for autistic individuals, especially those individuals who have high or high average intelligence. Suicide is often attributed to the condition of autism itself. Um, even though 75% of autistic individuals have been victims of bullying. And we know that a uh, history of trauma, like bullying, can be a risk for suicide. Suicide risk is highest in autistic women who are age 35 to 64. And again, with high and above average intelligence. And risk factors include loneliness, lack of belonging, and a perceived sense of being a burden to society and others. And these are risk factors in general for suicidality, but uh, may be more prevalent in people with, with, uh, in, in autistic individuals who are, uh, you know, struggling again in their environment. Autistic individuals may also lack factors that decrease the risk of suicide. Um, so these are like supportive factors like social support, helpful coping strategies, social and communication skills that you might need. You can imagine to seek treatment and obtain help. Like how do you navigate the healthcare system? How do you find a therapist? How do you connect with a the therapist? How do you communicate? If you have alexithymia, how do you communicate what you're feeling? How do you get what you need? How do you articulate it? Um, and so somebody who has a, a history or is in a situation with a lot of social isolation, loneliness, um, it may have difficulty in accessing help. Now, it's important to talk about certain features, masking, camouflaging, and neurotype dysphoria. So masking or camouflaging, these are I've seen used interchangeably. 
They characterize a neurodiverse individual's attempts to hide their symptoms to appear neurotypical. Sometimes this is done by copying the actions and mannerisms of a person or fictional TV character that seems well-liked and socially accepted. And so the individual, the autistic individual, will, or even the individual with ADHD will sort of like look at the uh, behaviors of the person and be like, okay, I'll just do that. I'll do that little smirk. I'll do that little laugh. And often there's like, a, because of an att- a, maybe a, a um, an attention to detail or an ability to really look between the lines and, and pattern recognition capabilities, autistic individuals can mask really well. We talked about this and how this can often delay a diagnosis, especially women who may be more because uh, who, who may feel the social deficits more heavily um, may res- resort to masking or camouflaging in order to fit in, in order to, because the pain of social rejection is so terrible. But masking harms the autistic person's sense of self. It's associated with lower self, uh, social well-being. It's associated with depression and suicide. Um, And it's also associated with delayed or misdiagnosis, particularly in women. Um, Very often, people with autism might not think I am uh, autistic and it's difficult for me to be extroverted, so I'm just going to kind of smile and, and nod and make eye contact at this party. They might not know that they're autistic, autistic, and they may uh, just feel like they're, they may internalize their social deficits, feel like there's something wrong with them, and then wear a mask. And and this may just further accentuate that feeling of social rejection and loneliness. Like if people knew the real me, they wouldn't like me. Um, main, there's a mainstream treatment for, uh, especially for children, and it's called applied behavioral analysis. And the neurodivergent community largely uh, rejects this um, this therapy. Uh, the criticism of ABA, applied behavioral analysis, is that it's teaching children how to behave neurotypically by re- through reinforcement. So when children display neurotypical behaviors, they are rewarded. And when they display neurodivergent behaviors, um, then they are, well, not necessarily punished, but they're just not rewarded. And um, and so this is thought to encourage masking to reinforce the idea that neurodivergent behaviors are pathological, that normal behaviors are preferred. So it emphasizes the idea of normalcy. Um, and so the neurodivergent community rejects this and um, and recognizing that things like masking harm uh, a neurodivergent individual's mental health, they uh, reject the idea. However, it's important to talk about this um, concept that was was coined by a researcher called Chapman in 2020. And it's not a very prevalent term in the literature. It might gain more prevalence. Um, it's in a... Um, Chapman writes about it in a couple of papers. One is like a Psychology Today paper, but another one is about um, neurodivergent form therapy. And they they encourage counselors to understand this concept. Neurodivergent dysphoria is the term. And it, it names the phenomenon in which neurodivergent individuals may feel uh, dysphoric. They may feel dysphoric identity. So they might wish to or identify with neurotypical traits, or they may set goals 
that appear at odds with their identity. So they might identify with the extroverted person at the party who's sort of the life of the party. And they might, and so maybe, you know, their neurodivergent, their neurotype dysphoria manifests as a desire to be more extroverted to gain social acceptance. And uh, this is not wrong, but it's it's interesting and, po- and maybe helpful for an individual to understand this concept if they feel like, what, you know, what is the difference between masking and accepting my identity and, and, you know, in how much should I try to fit in? And so to parse all of that out, like, you know, and this is often done in therapy in general, it's like, who am I? What are my goals? What are my values? What are my traits? What are my gifts? What are my weaknesses as a person, as an individual? How does that, um, line up with my environment, my social environment, my friends, my family, my boundaries. And often this is a, is a process of discovery. And so having this concept of neurotype dysphoria can help us name something that, um, th- that might be helpful to the individual, right? It's like, okay, so, you know, this is sort of who you are, but this is, there's a part of you that wants to be extroverted at a party. And so let's talk about that, you know, what, what might be gained from that? Is that, um, what does that feel like? Do you feel like you're denying yourself? Do you feel, um, do you feel bad about yourself? How's that affecting your self-esteem? How does that affect your anxiety? Um, maybe what we're talking about is a wish to reduce some social anxiety. So by understanding this concept, clinicians or any even individuals can support, um, their, their goals, and support coping, and then and they can they can separate this idea from masking or camouflaging. Um, and often, when we name something, we have terms for things. It helps us work with it. Again, it helps the process of externalization. Autistic burnout is a phenomenon that can result from the prolonged stress of adapting to a neurotypical world. So it involves camouflaging, masking symptoms, working harder to compensate for feelings of inadequacy. So uh, this is very common in ADHD individuals who are diagnosed later in life where they're like, I might be highly organized, like uh, very perfectionistic, very on top of things, um, always sort of striving to maintain order because I fear or, you know, I, you know, I've been in situations where there has been total disorder. And so there's overcompensation, this fear of letting oneself go. And this requires an, a vast amount of energy and a vast amount of investment of resources. And this can often lead to burnout because like in the case of Miranda, this feeling of having to work harder than everybody else and a lack of interoceptive awareness. So this awareness of our body sensations and our emotions may prevent a neurodiverse individual from being able to identify that this is happening. And this is, is this pretty common? I think burnout can often lead to symptoms of major depression because we don't catch it. We, we feel ourselves kind of in that go, go, go state, which we call the resistance phase of the stress response. You have the alarm phase from an acute stress. You have the resistance phase, which is like you're treading water. And then at a certain point you burn out. And when we're unaware of the amount of energy we're investing um, or how exhausted we are, it's it's a risk factor for falling into burnout. And I actually have a burnout podcast you should check out. Um, And so, you know, the best prevention of burnout is to 
rest and support our own resilience before we get to the point. Like you think of burnout as like a hole that we fall into. It, you know, if we prevent ourselves from falling in, it's a lot easier to treat it. But if once we're in the hole, it can often involve um, more strategies, more time to fully recover. And so this is, you know, this lack of interceptive awareness, this lack, this alexithymia can prevent the autistic individual from really recognizing the burnout or how hard they're working. Um, and autistic burnout may be diagnosed as depression. And, you know, the problem I have with the diagnosis of depression in general is that depression is very often a state of stress hormone resi- resistance in which we have been anxious and overworking and striving or dealing with stress or difficulty for so long that our body and our nervous system finally collapses. And the way that depression is framed in the psychiatric model is that it's a it's a brain imbalance that you were born with. And this just, again, it's like a misdiagnosis. It's like a diagnosis of bipolar if someone's autistic. It's going to the solutions will not superimpose completely over the problem, right? So when someone's dealing with burnout, you want to really understand what the symptoms are, what they're dealing with, what their circumstances are, and and provide support. So maybe support of our hormonal systems through herbs or nutrition. Maybe it's uh, rest, advocacy at work, that the person can take a, a leave of absence, setting up expectations. Like you're not going to take a week off and feel better. You know, how how can we make arrangements at work? How can we set boundaries? How can we facilitate? Should you be exercising or should you be resting? How do we navigate that? When it, the diagnosis is just depression, it's not honoring all of the different factors and considerations that make up those symptoms. And so misdiagnosis is, is a problem especially if we internalize that problem to a biological brain imbalance, which is often how depression is framed. Um, And I I see that as a problem very often where people are uh, told that there's really no other solution than medication or cognitive behavior therapy, and that they're going to have this problem forever. So it's just, you know, we're we're labeling, we're conceptualizing the problem uh, wrongly. and so, uh, you know, if, if somebody, you can imagine if somebody has a missed autism diagnosis, they ha- they don't have a diagnosis and they're dealing with autistic burnout and then they get diagnosed with depression, they may feel like that might even further accentuate this idea of autistic, uh, of, of you know, something being wrong with them, right? And and I will often hear the story of someone's depression. We, we always get into the story. If someone says they have depression, when did it start? How soon? What were the circumstances around the symptoms, how long did they last for, right? And and often we don't have that. Often other people tell our stories for us. So you go through a really terrible time where you're you're depressed and then you get a diagnosis and you're getting some sort of help and some sort of support. So that is positive. You're getting help from a psychiatrist. Maybe you're getting therapy. Maybe you're, you're on a medication that is providing some benefit. And so the story that gets told for us is like, okay, I have this brain imbalance, I have this problem, I need this medication, and it can be very, it can be empowering for some people, but more often than not, it's highly disempowering, and it removes these other important factors, like what was work like, what, uh, what traumatizing loss did you experience a few months before? Um, oh, you know. A lot of symptoms of autism. Perhaps you are neurodivergent, and maybe you're masking and 
maybe the, you know, looking at these patterns, looking at these other storylines um, are really important for parsing out, you know, the, the biopsychosocial factors of somebody's mental health and physical health. So that was a rant. I went off script. Um, trauma is often very prevalent in neurodivergent individuals history. So very often they struggle to fit in, um, growing up with an accumulation of unmet social and emotional needs can contribute to decreased self-esteem, poor mental health in autistic adults. Three out of four autistic people have been bullied. Bullying is a regular occurrence for autistic children, particularly girls. And being a victim of bullying, we know, can lead to anxiety, depression, and self-harm and can lower self-esteem. And girls and women with autism are more than three times more likely to be sexually assaulted than their neurotypical peers. It's very interesting to note, and I didn't really know where to put this in my paper, but I wanted to add a paragraph about eating disorders because up to 30% of patients with eating disorders are autistic. And this I did not know. And this is such an important consideration in eating disorder treatment, in in people, with, for, first of all, if a patient has an eating disorder, it may be worthwhile to have them assessed for autism or, or ADHD. But if 30% of patients in eating disorder clinics or diagnosed with eating disorders are autistic, this changes considerations for treatment. Because, so first of all, many eating disorder treatment centers are group-based. And so if you are a neurodivergent individual, is that going, is being in a group with 70% neurotypical individuals and possibly a neurotypical counselor who is applying a neurotypical frame, neurotypical ideas, neurotypical um, environment to your condition, is that going to be the best healing environment for you? Are you going to feel the most accepted, the most understood? Are you going to feel off, wrong? You're not necessarily going to respond well to therapy. If everyone's supposed to be sharing and describing their emotions and their internal feelings, is that going to be the best way for you to heal, right? So if, we, if we're missing this, if we're not aware of this massive um, overlap, like 30%, so about a third of people with eating disorders have autism or are, are autistic. So, and, and this might be because autistic individuals may have rigid eating behaviors, thoughts around food. There's characteristics like perfectionism, executive functioning issues, sensory processing challenges, altered proprioception and body awareness that may affect things like body image, ability to prepare food, consuming regular meals, intake of specific foods, and hunger and satiety cues. So there can be a lot around food. Um, for autistic individuals, right? So textures may be an issue, the executive functioning related to like meal prep and, and eating and proprioception to understand that you're hungry, um, you know, really hating certain foods, so restricting foods because of preference. Um, so, you know, most eating disorder treatment is focused on body image, right? It's thought that body image is the central issue that leads to anorexia, for example. But with an autistic individual, that might not be the central issue. And so a treatment program that's focused mainly on body image may miss all these other factors. And maybe, you know, what would be really helpful is skill building to support executive functioning, to support meal prep or, or organizing meals, um, you know, these other strategies that actually target the source of the problem. 
So this is a big area that requires more, probably more specific treatment, experts that understand how, how you know, autism and eating disorders overlap, the factors involved, um, and really important considerations for someone who is autistic and has an eating disorder to look for treatment that may be geared to neurodivergent individuals. Um, and, uh, and then it's also important, I would say, for someone who's been diagnosed with an eating disorder to maybe get assessed for autism if you feel like there are symptoms or features that you identify with. So it's a big, this is a big thing. Um, and, you know, eating disorders, we know it, it's, it's the most life-threatening mental health condition. And so it's not to be taken lightly. Um, and, and we need individuals to get treatment and treatment is usually involves very multifaceted approach, sometimes inpatient treatment, but very often a team-based approach where the family's involved. It's a, it's a big thing. Um, work is important to consider. So 86% of neurodivergent adults in Canada are underemployed or unemployed. So that is a massive number. In the Canadian Survey of Disability, only 33% of Canadian autistic adults report being employed compared to 79% of adults without a disability. And this is despite being capable and highly qualified. Um, there are many challenges that autistic workers may face, right? So social skills deficits can lead to social anxiety. It can alter tone of voice. Individuals may be more blunt. There may be features such as rigidity and hyperfixation that lead to poor relationships with work colleagues or work colleagues don't understand them. Um, you know, their work environments, you know, especially corporate environments, they just may not be set up for neurodivergent individuals. There's often like people need to be quite diplomatic. There's like office politics that are often more important than like work performance. And so these environments and, and often the um, the environment, like the lighting, the office structure, the, the, the temperament of your boss, all of these things can just be a really bad fit for a neurodivergent individual and lead to a lot of trauma related to work. Like if, if you're constantly like very capable and passing interviews and getting work because you have, you know, a lot of skills, you're highly intelligent. And yet there's just these, this mismatch between the individual and their work environment that might be easily remedied. If you're allowed to work from home or if you're allowed to work in a team or if you're able to, if people understand your communication style, like all these things could be really uh, easily fixed, but without an awareness, the individual ends up suffering. Um, so information processing delays can interfere with the ability to prioritize, organize, plan, and initiate work meet deadline, uh, or sorry, information process processing delays can interfere with the individual, with the ability to understand verbal instructions. Um, so often like verbal instructions are just tossed out, you're expected to understand it right away. And autistic individuals or individuals with ADHD, that might just not be enough. You know, how many times um, do you zone out and you miss what someone said? And it's like, I can't ask again, you know, and then executive functioning challenges may be uh, quite significant uh, because we work in so many environments, we're expected to have high level of executive functioning that burns out the most uh dopamine-driven individual with the highest executive functioning skills. So if you have impaired executive functioning, as many of us do, 
especially burnt out individuals, this can be a real challenge. A real, it can lead to a lack of ability to prioritize, a lack of ability to organize, to plan, to initiate work, meet deadlines, lack of motivation, just lack of ability to concentrate, focus, complete tasks. And office environments can be loud, they can be bright, they can be filled with fragrances, lots of people walking around, your desk might be open concept. Um, and there may be a lot of sensory overload. And this can interfere with someone's performance and concentration, like just even having a fan above you, and that's your desk, and it and you, it won't be changed, could be the difference between being highly successful at your job and not being able to produce or be productive at all. And so a history of poor work performance can lead somebody to internalize the symptoms, like, you know, like just this sense of failure can accumulate within the individual, lead to low self-esteem. But in a lot of cases, um, this is what leads, uh, especially autistic women to seek help and sometimes can lead to a diagnosis if they're like, I am just not doing well at work. I'm always losing my job. My, my boss never seems to like me. After a few of those experiences, um, people may luckily uh, happen on a diagnosis um, to develop some self-understanding and there, and then better language, understanding, ability to advocate for what they need or what would work for them so they can perform um, to their potential, which is often very high. Um, or find a, a work, a work that, that matches your uh, cognitive abilities, cognitive style. So it's important to talk about something called neurodivergent form therapy. So a neurodivergent individual, a neurodivergent individual's problems are viewed in this lens of therapy, socially, relationally, and environmentally, and not as a result of the neurodivergence or disability. Okay, so this is very narrative therapy-like. The problem is the problem, not the person. So if the problem is I keep getting fired, then we'd look at that right okay what is wrong with work what is going on you know what have your bosses been like what you know what did they say look at all the different factors look at all the arrangements okay the office they always want you to come into the office the office smells really like really bad it, it gives you a headache like the you know um so we okay what what can we do these are all very fixable problems right um Neurodivergent informed therapists should validate neurodiversity, promote agency, relate to clients authentically, and encourage goal setting and skill building that supports the individual's well-being and social integration while acknowledging their neurodiverse identity. So this is from a number of papers. Uh, one is called Neurodivergent Informed Therapy by Chapa and Botha, 2022. And Hume 2022 has a very interesting paper that we're going to talk about related to the therapeutic relationship. Um, but first we'll talk about the, the diagnosis. So receiving a new diagnosis of ADHD or autism can result in a lot of emotions. And I've, I've worked with many patients who have recently received a diagnosis who are kind of in the process of getting diagnosed. And it can be a lot. Like it is you know, even in the Enneagram community, which is not diagnostic, but it looks at like our, our personalities or like even getting a, a, a personality assessment can create this frame shift for a person. Cause you see a side of yourself that until it was called out, labeled, articulated, just receded into your environment. And maybe other people labeled you as lazy 
or like you just always thought you were bad at school. You didn't really understand why your grades were sometimes amazing and sometimes terrible. And it's like, am I smart or am I not smart? Or is it, is it the school? Is it school suck? Did my teacher suck? What was the, oh, oh, in one class I had to sit beside, you know, the window and there was like a, a cold breeze on me all the time. And there was someone in, behind me who was making noise, chewing gum. It's like, well, that's why I got a terrible mark in that class. So understanding, uh, getting this diagnosis can have, can lead to a lot of emotions related to self-understanding. So people may experience relief. It's not me. It's not my fault. A sense of validation, right? Sometimes reading about yourself, you're like, holy, this is this is me. I, I've never felt so understood you can feel shame. Like, what does this mean now that I have this label, this identity? Um, being different from people, confusion, you know, what parts are the person I thought I was? What parts are this new me? Am I still who I, who I thought I was? This, this identity shift can be, can be, can be very turbulent. Grief, mourning the old person, the person before the diagnosis, a sense of lost opportunities. If I'd known before, you know, if I'd had the resources, the support, what would I have become? Would I have gotten different education? Would I have picked a different career? Maybe pride. I can, I'm connecting to this community, you know, they're understanding like these people who are part of the community that you identify with that you know, there's a, you know, certain gifts that this type of cognitive style uh, gives me um, or allows me and sometimes shock, like sometimes you don't see it coming. So these are just some examples, but of course it could, it could encompass any emotion. Um, Holt and Langvik, they found that women diagnosed with ADHD as adults experienced a mixture of relief and hopelessness um, which seems kind of counterintuitive, but again, it's these mixed emotions that can be very contradictory, very confl con conflictual. So on the one hand, the diagnosis meant that symptoms weren't their fault, but this hope, the hopelessness resulted from feeling like their, uh, certain things were outside of their control. If you're lazy, there's always the question, well, I could just stop being lazy. I could figure out what makes me lazy and stop. But if now, oh, I'm understanding that this is how my brain gets energy. And if I don't have a solution right now, this is just who I am. Um, and so, you know, maybe now I don't call it lazy, but but this lack of motivation or this inconsistent motivation or this difficulty with executive functioning. Now I feel it less, uh, less like it's in, you know, it's not my fault, but also outside of my control. It's sort of like a weird, it's a weird place to be, right? Um, so there may be relief there, but there may also be this sense of like, what can I do? Um, individuals may feel conflicted about informing work or school or social relationships, right? Especially considering that nine out of 10 stereotypes about autism are negative. Um, people may not want to just declare that label um, for fear of stigma. Many newly diagnosed neurodivergent, neurodivergent individuals immerse themselves in research about their condition and are highly knowledgeable. And so very often my uh, patients with ADHD, autism, like know way more about it than I do. They've like highly immersed themselves. They're experts. Um, and so professionals working with neurodivergent individuals should also should be as informed as possible, uh, but also understand that, you're, that the client is the expert. And so if you are a client, if you're a patient, um, know that, you know, 
feel free to inform your professionals about what you know and and also um look f- you know well look for a professional that you feel good with that you have a good fit with but uh, a marker of a good professional is someone who's curious and open to learning and even if they may not know everything is like kind of you know uh taking the resources that you're offering checking them out like often patients will say like did you know about this uh group or this um instagram uh um, page. And so I'll, I'll check it out because I want to see what's out there that could be beneficial. Um, you know, information can be packaged in really helpful ways. There can be social support online, um, connecting with resources like autism Ontario. There's a lot of resources there. This may support individuals in realizing their gifts. So such as sensitivity, spontaneity, creativity, rather than focusing on deficits are really, you know, looking not just at the deficit side, but like at the, at the other side of like, what, what can, what, what are my superpowers? Um, neurodiverse individuals may prefer online spaces for building community and connection. So the on the online world is a place where you can meet people, where you can connect with people, where you can feel understood, where you can share. It may feel uh, easier to share online. Written word may be more helpful. Um, and online support groups and communities can support belonging and, and many people um, who are neurodivergent, um, feel better, feel more comfortable in online spaces. Well, this is not, it's not necessarily like a hundred percent. Um, the inaccessibility of assessment may result in many neurodiverse individuals foregoing an official diagnosis. And so again, as mentioned, it's not necessary. The official diagnosis is not necessary to feel, to be part of the neurodivergent community, to identify as neurodivergent because you possess the characteristics, the features of ADHD, autism, or another neurodivergent condition. Um, however, it may be worth pushing for diagnosis and official assessment if it allows you to access financial and social support that you might require access disability services that could be beneficial, advocate for yourself at work for special needs, um, especially those like kind of easily remedied things that you might need support to implement depending on the work environment. Um, But then also to support self-understanding. Like sometimes we, we may know that we are a certain way, but until we get the label of the official confirmation, we don't really, um, we don't really accept or integrate that identity. And so it's totally up to the individual. Um, So it's worth talking about the therapeutic relationship. And so very interesting that uh, this is maybe more for therapists, for doctors, for professionals. But um, so there's a study that had structured interview with 17 autistic adults. So this is a qualitative study. It's very low percentage, like a a low number of participants in this study, not like a quantitative, like scientific study. It's about um, looking, it's like structured interviews mean like you're talking closely with the individuals in the study and you're, and it's very narrative based. It's, and often there's rich detail in the information and you look at overlap, you look at patterns in the stories and in in the information that's being um, accessed. And so it's a really it's uh it's it's one way to do research and it can it's it's it can provide more individuality more color right it's not just data it's like there's story and so in these interviews 17 autistic adults were talked to interviewed and they they 
the theme of authenticity in the therapeutic relationship came up quite a bit. And participants all expressed that counselors and therapists needed to appear natural and not fake. And so this involved showing empathy without giving advice. Um, and it was important to display affection and to and to accept the client by like making it clear that the therapist liked the client. Um, and so there's many styles of therapy, right? Where like it's more like the Freudian psychodynamic, where like the therapist kind of removes themselves. They're not they're not necessarily giving a lot of validation, like sort of the blank slate style. And so the individuals argued against that, that it was important for a ther- the therapist to like, not to be their friend, um, to still maintain therapeutic boundaries, but to, to show like the, the acceptance and like, and so you can imagine somebody who might have had a history of bullying, social rejection, having their social needs unfulfilled, it would be really healing to work with somebody who accepts you, who likes you, who uh, who validates your identity, your existence, who who does nice things for you. And so that was so important. And and who isn't fake, right? That you're not going to get, um, you know, the person sort of judging you silently while they're acting nice. And that was so important. So, um, and so, you know, the empathy, the affection could be given through verbal expression, through acts of thoughtfulness or kindness. So like offering food was really helpful considering the individual's like preferences. So like providing fidget toys, caring about the, dimming the lights, like um, remembering the person, you know, bringing up their interests. Um, Two thirds of individuals interviewed described themselves as having high levels of something called effective empathy which means that they could kind of sense and absorb the other person's emotions. So this is a feature of neurodivergence. And is it nature or nurture? Some argued that it was like just genetic, like they always had this and others felt like their ability to detect these patterns and facial expression, gestures, tone of voice was a skill that they learned through studying neurotypical individuals, communication, and social practices. But Typically, neurodivergent individuals have an ability to pattern recognize. So, like noticing things in the environment that are not always salient to a neurotypical person. So, like, oh, you know, this gesture, this tone of voice, there's a mismatch there. That person's not authentic. Or you can pick up. And so, this over time, when you develop enough of these data points, you put together this conceptual map of like being able to kind of absorb what somebody's feeling. And somebody who's dealt with social social rejection is is quite traumatic, especially to developing humans. And so when we are rejected socially, it's so painful that our entire psyche can be oriented to avoiding that from happening. And so this is where masking comes in, but this is also where effective empathy may come in. It's like, okay, I said that thing and the person, that look occurred and then I was rejected. And so every time I see that look, I'm going to be really sensitive to any sort of cue that could um, predict my rejection or predict a negative reaction from somebody. And so being able to sort of like pick up, like train oneself to pick up on these cues was something that a pretty high percentage, two thirds of the individuals interviewed um, identified with. And so what this resulted in is that they were able to kind of pick up on the therapist's nonverbal cues. And then when those cues didn't match the therapist's explicit words or actions, they felt this sense of perturbance and like this uh, 
phoniness and this disconnection. So any phoniness in tone of voice, demeanor, or dress was perceived as highly off-putting. And to a therapist, this might also feel like, um, you know, uncomfortable because you're being highly observed and therefore it's like just letting down any pretext, like just being genuine, uh, you know, admitting mistakes and meaning we don't know, not lying is, is really important because, um, th- this mismatch between what your, your words are saying and what your body language is saying, you may not even be able to, um, control or notice maybe picked up by the neurodivergent individual or neurodivergent client. And this resulted in autistic clients unilaterally terminating therapy. So just saying like, this is not a good fit. I don't like this therapist. They probably don't like me. And therefore I'm going to experience a painful rejection at some point down the line, or I'm just going to feel unaccepted. And so they would just not come back to therapy or, and this may even be worse, they would hide a part of themselves. So if they detected disapproval from the therapist, they would just stop um, expressing whatever it was that they thought earned them that disapproval. And so this is obviously to the detriment of the therapeutic relationship. And we, and we know that therapeutic relationship predicts the majority of therapy outcomes, regardless of whatever type of therapy you do, whether it's CBT, whether it's trauma therapy, the therapeutic relationship is the goo that drives healing. It's the most important thing. And so prioritizing that is, is important. So, um, finding an authentic therapist that somebody trusts that you feel likes you um, if you are neurodivergent is um, should be high priority. Somebody that gets you, someone who's willing to learn, someone who's who's competent, but also real. Um, so we're, you know, there's often a lot of talk about self-disclosure, like should a therapist talk about themselves or disclose anything about themselves? And some people say nothing, 0%, but most, um, and obviously you shouldn't always talk about yourself. It's about the client. But um, there are different styles of therapy and um, there's always room for some self-disclosure as long as it's conscious and in service of the client's healing journey. And so it's always an open it's always an open question of how much is too much, how much is not enough. Um, but the clients interviewed, um, they felt that self-disclosure was really helpful, that it supported the alliance. It made them trust the therapist more. Um, it made the therapist feel more relatable and maybe having the focus off them, even for brief moments, just help them feel more connected. And, um, and very often self-disclosure is used for normalization, you know, um, yeah. Oh yeah. I also struggle with this. And that sometimes that can be really helpful to a person who feels alone um, or like they're the only one. Very often patients, you know, clients will say like, have you ever heard someone say this before? And uh, and I, they might be the fourth person that day who said that exact thing. This is where support groups could be really helpful because people can hear each other set, like express experiences that we never express in daily life and that we might feel like a giant weirdo for experiencing that is super, super common. And so sometimes there's a bit of self-disclosure of like, oh yeah, like you're the fourth person that said that to me today. Or like, oh, I feel that all the time. That could just, that could be the difference between, you know, somebody feeling totally alone and isolated and then feeling validated and 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 normal and, you know, normal, I guess, in the, in the general sense, but like feeling connected, feeling, um, validated um gestures of thoughtfulness so th- remembering the person you know being being client centered being person centered 
remembering to turn the lights off to reduce sensory load, providing fidget toys. Um, these are all noted and highly appreciated. And um, therapists could also should should display affection for clients. You know, maybe talking about special interests, incorporating them into metaphors. Metaphor is often very useful, especially for alexithymia. Um, is using uh, TV characters, using examples from literature, movies. And so if somebody's really interested, like special interests are like a feature of of autism where somebody's like really, really, really into something. Um, and uh, and so, you know, really incorporating the special, okay, you're really like a huge Harry Potter fan. Well, remember the time that Harry, like, uh, you know, the metaphor of dementors or... Um, remember when Harry did this. And so we can like often describe emotions or describe uh, co complicated and abstract ideas using movies, using narrative, using TV. And so that was often very helpful um, for uh, individuals who, you know, lack interoception, have alexithymia. So agency is something that should be promoted with everybody. But um, it can be promoted in neurodivergent clients by emphasizing their identity, acknowledging personality strengths as well as weaknesses, and um, supporting desires, knowledge, and commitments. So what's important to you? What do you want out of life or out of this therapeutic relationship or out of coming to see me as a naturopath? You know, what are you good at? What, 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 what do you struggle with? What do you prefer? What's your preferred outcome? You know, where are you coming from? Where are you now? Where are you going? Where do you want to go? Um, clinicians should allow neurodiverse clients to determine their own therapeutic goals, right? So we don't look at the person and say, okay, you need to like be more social. We figure out what are your goals? What do you want? What would be helpful for you? What would reduce your distress? What would help, you know, uh, what is the problem? Let's narrow down the problem as specific as possible so that we can solve it. So we can provide tools that'll help. Um, and it's important to understand that some things may be problematic to the individual. Like there may be some features that you want help with and others you might accept and embrace. And, you know, like hyperfixation, special interest. Maybe these things are a source of purpose and joy and you don't want, um, you're like, you know, all I care about is, uh, you know, Harry Potter. And like, that's cool you know, and, and, and so the, the goal of, of therapy should not be to correct or normalize somebody, but okay, well, what do you want? You know, like what, what are your goals? Like, what does health mean to you? Like what, what would be ideal? Um, so goals, it's, it's good to spend a lot of time in goals, you know, and, and so we'll talk often, sometimes goals are implicit as an ND, um, but sometimes we really will like, what is your goal for this? Like, what do you, what would be a good outcome for you? Um, you know, back to the concept of neurotype dys dysphoria, um, this concept may help us talk about goals uh, because sometimes goals are neurotypical, right? Sometimes it's like, well, I'm having problems at work and my boss is this way and I need to just be able to get along with her. It's like, okay, well, what could we do? So, you know, I got to go to this, like, whatever it is to, to, or I have to be diplomatic or she, uh, she doesn't like me being blunt. So I have to swallow my tongue and just, Remember what I'm allowed to say. So sometimes there may be goals that undermine our identity. There's this compromise always, right? And so if that serves your values and your interests and your goals, maybe that then we have this concept of neurotype dysphoria to talk about that. Um, 
many, you know, even the 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 most uh, stringent neurodiversity advocates, they will acknowledge that there is usefulness in appearing more neurotypical as a practical coping strategy. Smiling and making eye contact in moments where you're like, I just don't want to deal with any negative vibes from people. Let me just, you know, so um, when we're talking about masking, I think a big difference is the, is even articulating it, um, highlighting agency and choice around it, maybe using this concept of neurotype dysphoria, like when is it helpful? When do you want to do it? When do you not want to do it? You know, um, it, and the, and then this can also be done while affirming someone's identity as well, right? This is not something you have to do. Is this something that's worth doing? Um, you know, what happens if you don't do it? Uh, you know, is it worth this job? Do you have other options? Like, there's so many questions around this. Um, so self-care is a big one, especially in an environment that might be more taxing. We're talking about burnout. So individuals with autism and ADHD uh, suffering from sensory social overload or autism burnout may benefit from social and sensory withdrawal. And so this is a practice where you retreat to quiet rooms, draw a bath, turn off lights, or seek sensory comfort from pets, weighted blankets. Uh, all of these things can help recharge from the exhaustion of operating in, neuro in neurotypical environments or recover from the emotional toll of masking. Um, and so, you know, this might be a daily practice. It might be something that you have to do uh, on a weekly basis. This sometimes, you know, especially if like in the case of Miranda, right, a mother of two trying to keep a job, wondering why she's having like lack of performance at work, just being able to know that this is a need can sometimes really help. Like I need to just go to a dark room, lie with a bunch of cushions and the cat and I need an hour whatever it is, 20 minutes, and I need no one to come in. And this is something that my biology requires. And just in the same way, someone needs exercise or water. And to be able to, to, to be able to know that can help us uh, from feeling guilty, right? It's the, it's the whole, with self-care, the concept is you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you help others. Another analogy is I can't pour my cup into other people's cups if my cup is empty. And so self-care is not necessarily bubble baths, but it definitely can be. Self-care is what do I need to do to recharge my battery? And without a fully charged battery, I can't help others. I can't serve others. I can't do my work in the world. So this is always a conversation I have, um, especially in our stressed out world. It's a very um, probably important topic for to have with neurodivergent individuals. And if you're neurodivergent yourself, you might consider like, what are your self-care practices? What makes you feel good? What recharges you? You might not know off the top of your head. You might have to do some thinking about this. Um, many people, it, it might be a hobby. It might not be. Some, some self-care is more involved, requires more energy to invest in. Like I'm thinking of exercise or, you know, outings and travel. These things are maybe more expensive, more time-consuming, require an energy investment. Even if they do deliver an energy output, you might not have that energy investment, right? It, you know, um, but uh, but others may not be. Um, and, and sometimes just stepping outside and breathing in fresh air or cool water on your face or uh, an animal. And I'm planning to do a polyvagal 
podcast, there are some polyvagal theory, theory uh, um, episodes that I have if you, that you can search through. There's um, there's one on loneliness, and there's some interviews I've done um, with people on my podcast. So polyvagal theory is an interesting um, concept to understand the nervous system. So anything that kind of puts you in safe and social can help with nervous system regulation. And this could be it's it's usually a combination of our sensory inputs: scent, uh, sight, sound, touch. Um, and, uh, taste even. And so often, uh, people who are experiencing sensory social overload just want to be alone in dark, quiet, like almost like sensory deprivation. And so lukewarm baths can actually be a really good strategy for that. Lukewarm salt baths. Um, sometimes I'll suggest things and we see if that works, but very often the, the best strategies are ones in which you come up with yourself. Um, individuals with ADHD, particularly, they recognize that they experience better mood and executive functioning when they prioritize sleep, exercise, and general well-being. Um, and often this is like a big chunk of the work we do, uh, in my naturopathic practice is helping people with their routines. It's routines are often really difficult to maintain and, uh, very often they're all or nothing and yet they are someone's lifeline to help with mood and executive functioning and wellness. So, you know, how do we, did routines have to be like 90% of your day? Like what are important? Often we focus on morning routines, getting uh, food in, blood sugar, hydration. Um, and there's, there's certain, there's tips, there's strategies working very closely with people. Often uh, strategies emerge. Skill building maybe an important uh, aspect of therapy. Um, so Hervikoski found that dialectical behavior therapy tailored to ADHD involved participants' executive functioning. DBT or dialectical behavior therapy is, uh, was developed by Marsha Linehan for borderline personality disorder. Uh, and it involves a lot of skills that are involved that help with emotional regulation, help with cognitive an executive function. So they can, it, it, it's transferable to many more conditions than just, um, um, than just BPD. Um, so ADHD, there's been some benefit people with depression, anxiety. It, it's been helpful, um, because the emphasis is on emotional regulation on skills, uh, you know, and so there, there are skills that are applicable and supportive. And then there's, it's a group environment that could be really helpful in healing. And so it, it was improved executive functioning and individuals with ADHD, they benefit from support groups to meet and connect with other neurodivergent individuals and learn new tools. And this is like, you know, sometimes just the, just finding the community, um, it is healing in and of itself. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so this is, um, you know, where people can like, when you're connecting with people, it's like, you're finding commonalities, you're finding other people's tools, what's helpful, like one person um, that I work with discovered a, a certain brand of headphones that block out, that do really well to block out sensory stimulation that have helped her uh, ability to concentrate at work. Um, so that's fantastic. Um and, you know, with ADHD, slowly building habits that draw on strengths, aptitudes, and talents, and ensuring and celebrating success was vital. So it was like slow, building on strengths, you know, 
just not imposing some sort of new habit, but like really slowly building habits. And there's a mindfulness-based cognitive therapy tool of acting with awareness in which participants practice engaging fully in activities in the present moment. And this improved executive functioning. So you immerse your, you, you pay attention to what you're doing Ra- rather than kind of like distracting, zoning out while like kind of going through the motions and then losing that dopamine drive was like, I am breathing. I'm picking up a paper. I'm looking at it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in, engaged in the moment. This was the, the, this was the best skill. So MBCT as a whole, uh, was helpful, but it was specifically acting with awareness, that skill, which you could Google because there are tools to help with learning that skill. Um, and exercises you can do, that was the most helpful for improving executive functioning. And metacognitive awareness, or the awareness of being aware, um, so like the the being co- cognizant of your cognition, so thinking about thinking is another way of framing that, is a feature of executive functioning. And it can be improved through conscious practice. And it often is improved through Socratic or exploratory conversations. So I will ask, um, okay, so you you procrastinate. Okay, so you let's talk about the last time you had something due. What happened? And then we walk through, we parse out, we we get to the okay, and so we under, okay, what were you thinking about? Oh yeah, well, I I actually realized I was thinking that if I sit down to do it. I don't know what the conclusion or the introduction is going to say, so I can't write it because I just stare at a blank piece of paper. I actually just had this conversation with somebody. And uh, when she discovered that in the writing process, I was going to say most people, but I would just say in, in the writing process, what's often recommended is to write the introduction and conclusion at the end that was like, oh, wow, whole frame shift. Oh, this can be done differently. So this metacognitive awareness allows us to understand what's the actual obstacle, right? Because often it's like a blank page. I just, I'm just avoiding it and I just can't deal with this. And so I, the, the, the result is that I'm procrastinating or not doing it, or I'm waiting till the end where I feel the anxiety and the stimulation of stress and crunch time that now I'm motivated to do it. Um, but when we can find, oh, okay, the blank page, not knowing what to write for the introduction, but the, you won't know what to write for the introduction until you've written your paper. So let's, where, where should we, let's find a better place to start. Um, that really helps. And this is sort of part of ADHD coaching. And so coaching that uses visuals, narratives, self-observations to identify internal distractions was helpful in neurodiverse clients that struggle to improve executive functioning skills. So internal distractions, like what is my mind body doing that's distracting me? It's not like somebody like knocking at the door. Of course, that's going to distract us. What are the internal distractions that often go, they often escape our awareness? So developing metacognitive awareness, this exploratory questioning through maybe like journaling, working on this ability to think about our thinking, to recognize our own mind can help us identify what are the distractions? What are the obstacles? How do we work around them? And then we can be very specific with our interventions for building executive functioning skills. Um, Cognitive behavior therapy, so modified eight-week CBT, has been shown to reduce symptoms of social anxiety and improve mental health and social functioning in, in autistic individuals. Um, so often we're looking at strategies to help with this 
with the mental health conditions that may be associated with neurodivergence, but are not necessarily, a re- but are a result of the environment and how it interplays with neurodivergence, but not, uh, and, you know, so the, the social anxiety may be something that we want to work on, right. That's not about working on autism. It's about let's help the social anxiety. And so CBD could be helpful and it was helpful in autistic individuals. Um, and the researchers were concerned in their conclusion, they were like, you know, um, our social skills are, you know, they understand that that these social skills interventions might pose uh, a risk in increasing an autistic individuals' camouflaging. Um, because a lot of the time social anxiety is, so CBT for social anxiety is largely about confronting the behavior you want to avoid. Um, and dealing with the the anxiety, the physical sensations and thoughts and emotions of anxiety that occur as you are in a social situation, and then thereby getting used to those sensations, and then they're not problematic anymore. Um, and so the researchers were like, well, is this akin to, to masking or camouflaging, especially when we're talking about social skills? But what they found was if they provided a range of options then people could use, so maybe eye contact is an option, maybe going, you know, so there's uh, maybe changing the subject. So there was just different social skills they offered. So you can use a tool that feels, uh, that you feel comfortable with it, that gives you some options, that gives you a sense of agency and control. So you don't feel like you have to mask or hide yourself in order to complete the tasks. So it reduced this um, risk of, of kind of normalizing or pathologizing. Um, like we talked about the use of metaphor, using special interests, um, they can help, uh, enhance social and communication skills, right? So like, remember in that episode of whatever show where so-and-so said this to so-and-so, uh, you know, that's kind of like this. And so using that, enhancing that working with metaphor could be fantastic, especially in cases of alexithymia. Um, and, uh, you know, definitely you want to, um, adjust pacing use clear and concise communication, avoid confrontation, um, reduce stress. And then the sensory environment in therapy is really important. Um, so being allowing uh, clients to make suggestions about what's better for them. Do you want, how do you want the chairs arranged? You know, okay. Are you, is online therapy preferred? Do you want the camera on? Um, how's the, how's the uh, connection? How's the noise? Do you need different headphones? Um, do you need the lighting adjusted? Like all of these things uh, could be an obstacle to good therapy and could be very easily fixed. But if, you know, maybe the client is scared to voice that this is a need they have. Um, so allowing clients to kind of create their own space. Now there's nutritional considerations too for, um, especially for ADHD. So there's certain nutrients that are helpful for supporting executive functioning, supporting brain function, supporting cognitive function. Um, Omega-3 fatty acids are really important. Blood sugar regulation is absolutely important. And very often this has to do with really honing into specific strategies that will help somebody. Sometimes it's just like, having a food that you just do in the morning and it's like a recipe I recommend and it has protein and it has fat and you just eat it. And it's just kind of a chore, but that's important. And then recognizing why that's important could help motivate the individual. Um, Understanding what hunger is, developing more proprioception, body awareness, 
Uh, I find that 4 p.m. snack is really helpful for executive functioning. It's often when we have a depletion of dopamine, depletion in blood sugar, our neurotransmitters are low, cortisol levels are low, and we just feel burnt out. And that's often when we crave sugar. It's often when we go for coffee. It's often when we feel like burnt out. And uh, this is, I've, I've had patients have an- anxious uh, moments, like panic attacks at that time. I've had patients feel depressed at that time quite significantly. And then we look at their day and we find the lunch was really sparse and they didn't have a good breakfast. And so their best meal was dinner. When they finally got a chance to sit down, it was often a late dinner. And maybe it was a dinner that they ordered ordered out. But so maybe it wasn't the healthiest choice in the world, but it was a complete meal in that it had protein, it had fat, it had carbohydrates. And so then that's when the person felt their most energetic was after dinner. And that, that sometimes can predict the like, night productivity that can interfere with sleep. And so looking at someone's day and helping to just come up with strategies, right? So it's probably overwhelming and too much to ask for someone to do a whole day routine of breakfast, lunch, dinner. This is when you exercise. This is when your bedtime is. This is what, but that might be too many things. So sometimes we, we pick the most important thing and we start there. And so sometimes the process is very slow. But the good news is that when it comes to blood sugar regulation, sometimes just a meaningful habit change could have all, could just like a a protein in the morning could be the difference between a good day and a bad day for an individual. And so this is something that we're really like, we're doing a lot of nutrition coaching focused on that, looking at nutrients, right? What are ways in which we could make sure you're getting enough iron? Iron is really important for dopamine production. It's often deficient in individuals with ADHD. Um, I'm very interested these days in iron regulation that requires copper and vitamin A. So it's not just about iron supplementation, but about how iron may be causing oxidative stress if it's not getting where it needs to go and doing the jobs it needs to do. And therefore, we need to help with the recycling of metabolism. Beef liver is something that I would probably consider with people that need better, you know, brain support, executive functioning support, because beef liver also is high in folate as well as copper and choline, which is a nutrient that supports cell membranes, helps with cognitive function, helps make acetylcholine, which is the kind of like a concentration focused neurotransmitter. Um, In one of my podcasts, we talk about folate methylation. This is often a really important factor, often in neurodivergent individuals um, under methylate, which means they burn through neurotransmitters more quickly. So your brain loses energy. And so you need, and this is a feature of executive dysfunction is you need to be stimulated in order to be motivated. So this is why we might be able to perform at crunch time. But if you have something due a week from now, it's hard to get motivated until you have those stress chemicals in your system. So supporting dopamine production, supporting neurotransmitter production can help stabilize mood. This is done through blood sugar regulation. It's done through uh, honoring methylation. So beef liver, B complex, um, zinc is really important. There's a condition called pyroluria in which, uh, red blood cells accumulate these things called pyroles that are depleted and reduced with B6 and zinc. And so individuals have a much higher need for vitamin B6 and zinc and often feel like their brains are much clearer and that their anxiety is gone if they're on top of that supplement regime. Magnesium is always important for um, for energy levels. And then we're also looking at just like physical comorbid conditions, like how is gut health? How is uh, hormonal health? 
you know, how's your mental health? Like, are there any other conditions you're dealing with? What are the signs? So really in like a naturopathic intake, we're looking deeply at the specific features of somebody's case. Again, the biological, the, the psychological, the social. Um, but these are just some considerations. Supplementation could be could have a huge effect. And uh, looking at inflammation, food sensitivities, that might be relevant. Fungal infections, dysbiosis, gut infections could be majorly important. Um, inflammation might be a feature. And, you know, it, when it comes this this concept of nutritional genomics is we all have genes that thrive in certain environments, but we're all living now in this this specific modern environment. And, and this kind of fits with the neurodivergence movement is when our genes and our environment are at a mismatch, this creates disease, this creates difficulty, this creates mental health issues, physical health issues. And sometimes supplementation supports our genes. This is the, the idea of nutritional genomics. It's like maybe my genes mean I need to supplement B vitamins or beef liver or something like that. If you want to more, maybe my ancestors all consume tons of liver. And now because of, I live in a society where we don't consume liver, I am deficient in folate and choline and all these things that I need more of. And so supplementing can help. And, you know, we live in an environment where there is a lack of magnesium and the increased stress of our environment and the demands and the requirement for high executive functioning burns our magnesium resources more quickly. And so we we are in an environment where we have a lack of magnesium and an increase in magnesium burn rate. And therefore, supplementation may be required, you know, or it's important to focus on foods that have high magnesium. So th there's these considerations that are helping us adjust our environment, our nutritional environment, um, to support our specific genes, needs, biochemical individuality. And so, you know, when we're looking at neurodivergence, considering that it's a genetic, um, a, a genetic state, genetically determined there may be certain SNPs and nutritional considerations that are also genetic that, that are overlapping. Um, and there, and of course we're looking at environmental mismatch, right? Is your work environment just not conducive to your cognitive style, to the way that you work? Do you work better at nighttime? So how can we, how can we advocate? How can we help your environment fit you better so you can thrive? Um, so what we're curious about uh, for for the future is for more conversations from neurodiverse people um, in research and clinical spaces, like to understand more the neurodivergent mind specific needs, parsing apart the the social determinants of health from the individual's unique needs. Right. So we see, okay, there's an increased risk of suicide, but if you provide social support to the individual then this risk of suicide decreases. So how can we provide the proper amount of social support? How can individuals access social support? Um, and, uh, you know, there, historically there's been a lack of neurodivergent voices in the research. Um, and it was like, you know, Botha writes that um, in her PhD studies, it was like her uh, opinion or lived experience was um, somehow considered invalid because it was like, it wasn't objective. And she argues that, you know, objectivity is about, you know, objectivity is impossible. Um, true object objectivity is because we're all humans and we all come at things with a, with a certain bias. And so what we should strive for is rigor 
and peer review. And that will provide, it allows us to access truth. And we need to have different voices lending their experience we can understand. Um, and interestingly, you know, the, the conversation has a lot of the time been focused on, um, you know, so in the in the neurodivergent community, in the autistic community, there's less of an interest in the cause of autism because it is is considered just a biological variability, right? So it's like it's not like how can I, you know, have a baby with red hair? It's like that's just not really possible. It's just genetically determined that your baby will have red hair. You can't change that or prevent that. Um, and 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 there's nothing wrong with red hair, anyways. And so let's just accept that this is a biological variability and that it's beautiful and let's like support the well-being of the individuals um, as opposed like, you know, services, interventions, accommodation, acceptance, rather than questions around prevention, cure that we would consider for like diseases. And so there's a big movement away from that. This is the, so autistic-led research is more likely going to focus on how do we support the individual versus like the medical model version of like prevention cure disease model. And uh, so this is a um, an argument for individuals within a community conducting their own research, you know, uh, being a participant in clinical considerations. Um, and then we also want to consider, you know, how uh, neurodivergent how, um, led therapy or neurodivergent therapy groups would be helpful for um, for treatment fidelity, for treatment response, especially in conditions like eating disorders, where a high percentage of individuals with the condition are neurodivergent. So would it be appropriate to have neuro like eating disorder support groups for neurodivergent individuals or eating disorder prevention for neurodivergent people? Like what are what are the considerations? How do we work with that overlap? Um and so, you know, it, it's, it's in conclusion, <laughs> you know, we want to understand, um, you know, th that there is neurodiversity, that we are all diverse human beings, and that at least 15% of us have a different style in the way we relate socially and cognitively with the world. And this, uh, it, you know, previously, historically has been recognized as like a, you know, a divergence from the norm. Um, uh, and now we're recognizing this is just like biological diversity. And uh, and there are specific challenges that somebody with this um, type of diversity faces. And there are increased risks, um, suicide, depression, anxiety that are likely from these external factors um, that might be related to trauma, bullying, um, difficulties with work, underemployment, unemployment. Um there's an increased likelihood of social trauma, especially bullying. And there's, there's consequences of delayed and misdiagnosis and um, this internalization of symptoms to personal or moral failings, as opposed to someone's neurodivergence. And so, you know, understanding minority stress, understanding concepts of masking, camouflaging, autistic burnout may be helpful. Um, and, you know, identity first language um, is important authenticity, um, and working specifically with an individual's goals, skill building, executive functioning might be a very important thing to talk about. Um, 
working with burnout, preventing burnout might be really important. This idea of neurotype dysphoria might be helpful. Identifying other comorbid con- or understanding uh, comorbid conditions or mental health conditions that might be um, someone might be experiencing such as eating disorders, social anxiety, and uh, and learning from neurodiverse individuals. So that was my presentation. Let me know if you have any questions. Hopefully that was helpful or at least informative. Um, yeah, let me know if there's other things I should have included, if there's other things I should have considered, um, any questions you have for me. And, um, if you need references, let me know. Um, but thank you for listening.